following along with your own copy of the autobiography. Uh, we ended on page 389 last class, but we will skip ahead and begin today at 390, just from the second paragraph. <clears throat> Two more days of the fascinating Kumbh, then northwest along the Jamuna banks to Agra. Once again, I gazed on the Taj Mahal. In memory, Jitendra stood by my side, awed by the dream in marble. Then on to Brindavan, ashram of Swami Keshavananda. Remember the story of Agra and Brindavan as young boys, those two penniless boys in Brindavan. And I'm sure again, so many memories must have come flooding because now, again, it's just, it's helpful to come back to the fact that Yoganandaji is now this full grown adult with an entire global work of his own. And he's remembering those really humble, those really simple, those really kind of sweet moments where his love for God was tested, where he put into practice everything that he was uh, receiving from his guru, from the great saints that he met. And you can see that unbroken thread of his love for God, never for a moment wavering, no matter what age he was, no matter how difficult the situation was outwardly. And now he's arrived in a completely different bhav. Now he has a car with him. Now he has an entire group of disciples with him. Americans. It's such a, such a different Americans with him. <laughs> Just an entirely different reality. My object in seeking out Keshavananda, you might remember Keshavananda was a is or was a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya. We've met him once or twice on previous occasion. Was connected with this book, this book that we're reading. I had never forgotten Sri Yukteswar's request that I write the life of Lahiri Mahashaya. During my stay in India, I was taking every opportunity of contacting direct disciples and relatives of the Yogavtar. Recording their conversations in voluminous notes, I verified facts and dates and collected photographs, old letters and documents. My Lehri Mahashaya portfolio began to swell. I realized with dismay that ahead of me lay an arduous labor in authorship. I prayed that I might be equal to my role as biographer of the colossal guru. Several of his disciples feared that in written account, their master might be belittled or misinterpreted. One can hardly do justice in cold words to the life of a divine incarnation, Panchanon Bhattacharya had once remarked to me. So we see, I think Narayani mentioned this in one of our classes, I don't remember, but other than the fact that Yoganandaji was returning back to India to be with his guru and, you know, just come back and see after 15 years, everything, uh, a key kind of motivation, intention behind his return was in fact to write this book. He remembered that Sri Yukteswarji had given him that, um, almost you can say that authority. But Lahiri Mahashaya himself had said, earlier when his disciples would ask him, can we write something about you? Why don't we start this? And he said, later on, I think he gives even a time, like 50 mm. years from now or something, he says, a book will be written about my life. And so, of course, he was also well aware. 
And so Yogananda ji is having to travel and also meet all these people, take notes from them, verify notes. You know how it is with stories. Everybody <laughs> likes to exaggerate stories. Everybody likes to make make their story seem a little more important than everybody else's stories. So you're not going. To, you're not only having to like figure out how you know how factual, how true, how real is this. You're having to connect it to many other people's life experiences and make sure. Oh yeah. All three people are saying more or less the same thing because it's a great responsibility, isn't it? To put something like this out there, yet at the same time, ensuring that Lahiri Mahashaya's spirit, his power, that divine incarnation shines through every word that in no way does it belittle, you know, this is, it's a, it's of course, it's a tricky task, writing anybody's life. Raini, maybe... When you were writing Swami's book, I, I oh imagine how that would have felt. You were there. It was quite humbling. and Tearing just, her hair yeah, yeah. every time. And I mean, making sure that even what you think you understood, still you question yourself. Because in the way I understood certain things that Swamiji told me 10 years ago, now, today, I understand them deeper than then. So what I wrote in that book maybe three, four years ago, now I can see deeper layers of that lesson. So it's just fascinating as, as the disciple continues to deepen his attunement with his own guru, uh, the lessons and the spiritual insights that we receive from within they become deeper and deeper and deeper. So it's just like a never-ending journey of understanding. I was thinking about this, you know, paragraph and the book itself. Like, it seems to me, as, as we keep moving, you know, along chapters, that it's, this book, it's mostly about Lahiri Mahashaya. I mean, almost like, Yogananda wants to bring back, you know, to all of us, brings us to, bring us to that moment where Kriya Yoga was born and how, how was introduced through uh, Lahiri Mahashaya. And the importance for Yogananda to search those direct disciples of Lahiri Mahashaya wasn't enough for him just to any disciple who heard something from Lahiri Mahashaya. He really tried to go to the source and to those closest disciples and, and receive information. He acknowledged the value of receiving that wisdom from a direct disciple. And I was thinking about Swami Kriyananda and the responsibility that he took himself for sharing absolutely everything he went through, he heard from Yogananda himself. And he wrote 150 books just from memories, from deep meditation, from Yogananda's words uh, itself. And, and he, he knew that those stories would have a consequence in many of our lives. 
And it's just fascinating to see the importance of going to a direct disciple of any guru to just receive that more direct wisdom. Other close disciples were similarly satisfied to keep the yoga avatar hidden in their hearts as the deathless preceptor. <laughs> Nobody was too keen on <laughs> sharing too much. It's such a sacred experience to have been with your guru and what you went through. Everybody was a little like, mm, I don't know if I wanna, if I really wanna give these treasure troves away. Nevertheless, mindful of Lahiri Mahashaya's prediction about his biography, I spared no effort to secure and substantiate the facts of his outward life. Swami Keshavananda greeted our party warmly at his Brindavan, Kathyayani Peet Ashram, an imposing brick building with massive black pillars set in a beautiful garden. Interestingly, now, our work in Vrindavan, you know, we have uh, the Paramahansa Yogananda Charitable Trust there that takes care and looks after several thousand widows and sadhus, the, the mothers who come to Vrindavan. The property that we have now is just adjoining and touching Swami Keshavananda's ashram, so you can see his ashram from where we are. So it's a lovely, again, you know, just these tiny little moments that feel, ah, you know, we're with Connected, our guru, no matter yeah. what's happening, there we are with him always. He ushered us <clears throat> at once into a sitting room adorned with a large, an enlargement of Lahiri Mahasaya's picture. The Swami was approaching the age of 90, but his muscular body radiated strength and health. I informed him that I wanted to mention his name in my book on Indian, India's masters. Please tell me about your earlier life, I smiled entreatingly. Great yogis are often uncommunicative. <laughs> Keshavananda made a gesture of humility. There is little of external moment. Practically my whole life has been spent in the Himalayan solitudes, traveling on foot from one quiet cave to another. For a while I maintained a small ashram outside Hardwar, surrounded on all sides by a grove of tall trees. It was a peaceful spot, little visited by travelers owing to the ubiquitous presence of cobras, he chuckled. Later, a Ganges flood washed away the hermitage and cobras alike. My disciples then helped me to build this Brindavan ashram. I like that first line. I don't know if you tuned into it. It says, there is little of external moment. Like I have almost nothing externally that I have that's happened in my life because he's lived such an inward life that there's little of anything to talk about that is external. Such a beautiful thought yeah. for him to have said, well, I've just kept my life force and my awareness and my consciousness so inward that even I couldn't quite tell you what's been happening outside in my life. There was little of external moment. If you do visit Rishikesh and Hardwar, you will be able to go and visit Keshavananda's ashram. In fact, in there, there's the uh, ashes. special ashes of Lahiri Mahasaya's cremation, which is a wonderful, very powerful place to meditate. So even though I imagine this earlier ashram did get kind of washed away with the flood, but there exists now another in its place. One of our party asked the Swami how he had protected himself against the Himalayan tigers. I'm sure this was an American wondering, how did he go about 
Keshubananda shook his head. In those high spiritual altitudes, he said, wild beasts seldom molest the yogis. Once in the jungle, I encountered, encountered a tiger face to face. At my sudden ejaculation, the animal was transfixed as though turned to stone. Of course, these guys have powers that you and I perhaps won't be able to I replicate. I need to experiment with you. <laughs> you can turn me to stone, it's happened before. And then Aryavan had to come and <laughs> pour some water over me. Occasionally, I left my seclusion to visit my guru in Banaras. He used to joke with me over my ceaseless travels in the Himalayan wilderness. You have the mark of wanderlust on your foot, he told me once. I am glad that the sacred Himalayas are extensive enough to engross you. Many times Keshavananda went on bef both before and after his passing. Lahiri Mahashaya has appeared bodily before me. For him, no Himalayan height is inaccessible. Keshavananda is one of the few disciples that even earlier on, just as Lahiri Mahashaya had passed away, we read that he had come to him in physical form and told him about his passing and asked him to come to Banaras. Similarly, he did it that with Swami Pranabhananda. Two hours later, he led us to a dining patio. I sighed in silent dismay. Another 15-course meal? <laughs> Less than a year of Indian hospitality and I had gained 50 pounds, which would be what, around 25 kilo kilos? Yet it would have been considered the height of rudeness to refuse any of the dishes, carefully prepared for the endless banquets in my honor. In India, and nowhere else, alas, a well-padded Swami is considered a delightful sight. After dinner, Keshavananda led me to a secluded nook. Your arrival is not unexpected, he said. I have a message for you. I was surprised. No one had known of my plan to visit Keshavananda. While roaming last year in the northern Himalayas near Badri Narayan, the Swami continued, I lost my way. Shelter appeared in a spacious cave, which was empty, though the embers of a fire glowed in a hole in the rocky floor. Wondering about the occupant of this lonely retreat, I sat near the fire, my gaze fixed on the sunlit entrance to the cave. Keshavananda, I am glad you are here. These words came from behind me. I turned startled and was dazed to behold Babaji. The great guru had materialized himself in a recess of the cave. Overjoyed to see him again after many years, I prostrated myself at his holy feet. I called you here, Babaji went on. That is why you lost your way and were led to my temporary abode in this cave. It is a long time since our last meeting. I am pleased to greet you once more. This line meant a lot to me as I read it. That is why you lost your way and were led to my temporary abode. And this is something that was interesting. I mean, how many times do we feel lost? And not, not necessarily I'm lost in Mumbai, my GPS isn't working, I don't know where to find the fabric store that I'm looking for, but just lost in life. We're not sure where to go, we're not sure what to do, we're not quite certain about our next steps. And 
Even Lahiri Mahashaya had to be lost in order to find Babaji. You know, there's just some, there's a quality to not being absolutely sure of yourself all the time. There's a quality of feeling, I'm not entirely certain what's next. There's a quality that allows for an opening. Otherwise, oftentimes we're just pretty closed to God's presence. When we know what to do, we're barely thinking of Him. When we have our clear goals and directions, we're just moving quite subconsciously or even consciously, but definitely not super consciously towards them and just at it. But when we're lost, every time we're not quite certain, there's room, there's space where we call on for divine help, where we suddenly say, what am I to do? You know, who's going to guide me? And that quality of being lost, I feel, is, is an interesting one. Yoganandaji was lost when he found, uh, when he was looking for uh, Ram Gopal Mazumdar. Uh, you know, Lahiri Mahasaya, as I said, was lost when he first met Babaji, Keshavananda now. And again and again, you've got this repeating quality of not always knowing what's next. Not always knowing where you are. And uh, we have to find a certain level of comfort in that stage. Mm. And then to call upon divine grace to support us. And always now, you know, it, even this happened when we read it about the Lahiri Masha incident. But somehow this is kind of a stuck thing in my mind now. Is Every time I'm lost, I feel Babaji's doing something, you know. <laughs> It was I who made you lost. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on. It must be Babaji. Or whatever it is. But, you know, there has to be. There's, there's just this little window. And it doesn't last too long because very soon we shake it off and we, you know, come back to our subconscious habitual routine and we're like, I'm not lost anymore. <laughs> you know, I just have to do this, this and this. But when that window comes where I'm not quite sure, that's actually a very, very powerful moment if we're able to fully accept and fully step into it. And in Keshavananda's case, this was both literal and figurative. <laughs> he was lost. But so are we so often. The deathless master blessed me with some words of spiritual help. And then added, I give you a message for Yogananda. He will pay you a visit on his return to India. Many matters connected with his guru and with the surviving disciples of Lahiri will keep Yogananda fully occupied. Tell him then that I won't see him this time as he is eagerly hoping, but I shall see him on some other occasion. This is another interesting mm -hmm. thought to me. Babaji could easily just tell Yogananda himself, hey, I'm not going to be seeing you this time, you know, whether through a thought in his mind, whether easily materializing in the United States. I mean, it's not like Babaji's stuck to the Badrinarayan region. But again, the interconnecting web of all our lives and the karmas and how they intersect, we all have a role to play in each other's lives. And that's a very, I don't know, um, both a comforting but also a humbling reality we have to open ourselves to. We have this idea that God should speak directly to me always. Babaji should come to me and only me. And if he has a message for me, you know, it has to come from him and so on and so forth. And we tend to be a little kind of closed, 
when it's coming from other sources. And we don't easily recognize divine intervention when it comes to us from the people in our lives. And this is another beautiful example, and Babaji's done this many times before. And so have the other great saints. They could easily just come and tell the person directly. I mean, there's just really zero limitation involved for them there, but they don't. They bring about different intersecting circles because Keshavananda also had to gain something from you and then he had to meet Yogananda. And there are just these karmic plays and circles within circles of intersection of our lives and the ability to recognize God when he's not in the form that you would want him to be. Because for us, we're just like, Babaji looks this way, he has to say it this way, he has to be this way, Sri Yukteswar is this way. I mean, we're just, you know, even in our, even though we'll talk about, oh, they're infinite in their consciousness, we still very much want them in this boxed, you know, version that we're reading about, that we've come to familiarize ourselves with. And so we reject every other possibility. But the truth is, if Babaji were to be here right now, the majority of us wouldn't even be able to see him. He's probably sitting right here. You know, I mean, who knows? I mean, with him, there really is no limiting reality. But what he's hoping to do is allow us to open ourselves to God in every person in our life. Because everyone might have a message from Babaji, even though they may also not know it. Because he's doing the same thing with them. And especially in spiritual families, in groups of disciples, always holding that little bit of humility that from someone else, through their words, through their insights, through an intuition perhaps that they've had, something will come for me as well, a message. And it just allows us to be always open to God's presence in every form in our lives. I was thinking in this case, we are talking a little bit higher, no guru, disciple, when we really want to see the divine form or a specific message given to us at the time we want. But I was thinking, I mean, this doesn't happen just with us wanting to hear directly from the guru, but with so many other mundane things. I want this. And we just don't let go of that. I want this in this particular way. I want this situation to happen in the way I expected. I want for this person to be in the way that I, all, I think that person ought to be. And we just don't let go of the idea of how it should be. And Babaji comes in the picture, or God comes, and he says, no. I'm just not going to give it to you right now in the way you want it. Just let go. I will decide when that other person needs to change, <laughs> when that other project needs to happen, when that situation needs to be resolved, when that project needs to be manifested. Not whenever you want, excuse me. <laughs> whenever I feel will be right for you and you will be ready to do something worthwhile and in harmony with God's will. So learn to let that go and trust that I know what you need 
at the right time. And, and that's what true faith means, that even those things that we are chasing, we are praying for, we hope, we expect should come to us, even those things that we think are ours by right, even when they don't come, we need to trust that, okay, maybe Babaji knows that right now it's not the time. It's just, it's not my moment. I'm not spiritually ready to be part of that karmic spiritual situation, to be in that vortex when I will transform myself by that very experience, by having a conversation with that particular person, by being part of that business plan, or being part of that meeting, or being part of that group. And it's just, no, right now, there is something else. I'll give it to you in a year, as Babaji said here. Not now. Next year, I will, I, I'll find another time. And this is a very important thing for us to treat equally when something comes to us and also when something is taken away from us or doesn't come at the time that we thought um, should come, which is a, it's a very, very important lesson for us to remind ourselves. We will save a lot of inner mental disappointments I was deeply touched to receive from Kesha Bananda's lips this consoling promise from Babaji. A certain hurt in my heart vanished. I grieved no longer that, even as Sri Yukteswar had hinted, Babaji did not appear at the Kumbh Mela. <laughs> so he had really held that expectation, you know, I mean, he said it to Sri Yukteswar Ji as well, but he was really hoping, it's like, you met him there, I think I'll meet him there as well. I know some of us were thinking of going to the Kumbh Mela when we were Brahmacharis. And why did we want to go to the Kumbh Mela? <laughs> what do you think? We might see Babaji there too. I mean, that's the only that's the only thing everybody is hoping for and really, really wants. So when we go on these pilgrimages to Babaji's cave, you just somewhere in the back and back, oftentimes not so back, quite very much in the front, is that he's going to come. He's going to be there. And of course, you know, he disappoints us, but not particularly. It's just that, <laughs> wait for me to come to you in other ways before you're even ready to receive me in this, the most holiest, perhaps, of forms. Spending one night as guests of the ashram, our party set out the following afternoon for Calcutta. Let's move on to the next page. We'll go down a couple of yeah. paragraphs and land in Calcutta. These are just tiny little fun sections, but nothing particular right now for us to tune into. In a few days, our little group reached Calcutta. Eager to see Sri Yukteswar, I was disappointed to hear that he had left Serampur and was now in Puri, about 300 miles to the south. Come to Puri Ashram at once. This telegram was sent on March 8th by a brother disciple to Atul Chandra Roy Chaudhary one of Master's Chelas in Calcutta. News of the message reached my ears, anguished at its implications. I dropped to my knees and implored God that my Guru's life be spared. As I was about to leave Father's home for the train, a divine voice 
spoke within. Do not go to Puri tonight. Thy prayer cannot be granted. We spoke about this in the last class as well, where Yoganandaji talked about how I'm always, every time somebody important in my life has passed, God has always kept me away. Or in some cases, he has himself physically moved away because he knows when he's with, at the moment, he could implore and the very power of his prayer could, or in fact, would force Divine Mother to hold that person in their body. And so Divine Mother says, I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to go through that with you. And so she says, thy prayer cannot be granted. Do not go to Puri tonight. Lord, I said, grief stricken, thou dost not wish to engage with me in a tug of war at Puri, where thou wilt have to deny my incessant prayers for master's life. Must he then depart for higher duties at thy behest? He knows, I mean, he knows exactly what's happening. It's not like he's like, oh, why this is unfair or this is not right. Or, you know, the reasons we have when we think somebody not only should not leave the body, but should not anything bad should not happen to us because it just doesn't feel right. Only good things should happen to us. That seems perfectly right. That seems perfectly in tune with God's will. Why would he want anything bad to happen? So do you really must he depart for higher duties? Because that's what Sri Yukteswar needs to move on to a higher duty. In obedience to the inward command, I did not leave that night for Puri. Again, this is another one of those really powerful moments that we don't really tune into. How obedient Yoganandaji was in that moment. I mean, he could have. And, he, you know, he very well could have gotten there and he could have gone through this. And he's being obedient in something that's very dear, dear to his heart. I mean, it's like... Yeah, think about the most important thing in your life and God just saying, I'm sorry, I won't give that to you. And, and you actually have the power to get it. You know, it's, it's not even like he's saying, no, I'll stop every train and I'll you know, destroy every railway track so you can't get to Puri or no, nothing. Just don't get on the train tonight. Because if you do, <laughs> we're going to have a little thing and I might end up having to... You might even get what you want. And this is the most important thing to Yogananda. I mean, this is the only theme of this book that that is an unbroken reality. My guru is the most important thing in my life. But in obedience to that inward command, how many of us are able to be obedient to these moments in our life and just say, all right, Renedo. You know, I can get it, nothing's stopping me from getting it, except this inner voice, this little intuition, this guidance from my guru, a clear sign outwardly that this is not going to happen. And how many of us would push against that and resist that and make sure that, oh, my will, my will seems very, very important in this moment. No, in obedience to the inward command, I did not leave that night for Puri. The following evening, <laughs> I set out for this. Like, all right, the moment that time frame ended, let me see. Now I can go. But I just, you know, let's take a moment also to see those hours that he had to wait mm -hmm. before he took the next train. I mean, what that must have meant. Meant or meant? Meant. Meant for him. I mean, like... 
what did he go through? I mean, inwardly preparing himself to accept um, a completely change of his relationship with his guru, like, okay, now I'm going to go and he, he's going to be gone. I mm. mean, I, I cannot speak with him. I cannot share anything with him because now when I will see him, he will be there no more. It will, feel, it will be the first time that I will be in his presence and that divine consciousness won't be there in the form that I'm used to relate to. And it's, it's just important for us to, to, to prepare ourselves, to give ourselves the time to spiritually prepare to a challenge. To, to face a situation that it's completely is completely unknown to us is to give for ourselves some time to to go to that place within when we have fully accepted fully accepted God's will and then approach to that situation with that acceptance because I'm sure this wasn't an easy moment for Yogananda, and you will see later on. It just it took time for him to recover from this shock, even though he was a self-realized master. But it was hard. I heard Swami Kriyananda once saying that uh, you have one of the latest attachments you have to offer up is the attachment even for the love that you have towards your guru, the attachment to your guru. I mean, that in itself also needs to go away. And, and, and here we have right now like a very, very important moment in Yogananda's discipleship. Okay, my, my guru is about to leave and I can't be there. And from now on, a, a big shift is about to happen in my relationship with him. I mean, how, how I'm going to, to cooperate with this, with, to deal with this. I mean, just, just good to give ourselves some time in that um, interlude, in that moment of, of transition. The following evening, I set out for the train. On the way at seven o'clock, a black astral cloud suddenly covered the sky. Later, while the train roared toward Puri, a vision of Sri Yukteswar appeared before me. He was sitting very grave of countenance with a light on each side. Is it all over? I lifted my arms beseechingly. He nodded, then slowly vanished. As I stood on the Puri train platform the following morning, still hoping against hope. An unknown man approached me. Have you heard that your master is gone? He left me without another word. I never discovered who he was, nor how he had known where to meet. These are those moments. Could it be Babaji? Could it be Sri Yukteswar? Who could it have been? So many people we have in our lives that, you know, we have just the most brief interaction with, of course, not with such a grave or such an important message. But again, sometimes I'm always, I always marvel at the people who are perhaps in a certain way the least significant in our lives. 
and perhaps what they gave in that moment was the most significant. Stunned, I swayed against the platform wall, realizing that in diverse ways my guru was trying to convey to me the devastating news. Seething with rebellion, my soul was like a volcano. It's an interesting thing coming from Master, mm -hmm. seething with rebellion. He was upset. <laughs> he was angry with God. He wasn't just, he wasn't just doing, okay, just breathe, count your breath. One, two, three, four. You know, no hong so. <laughs> no, in that moment, let me do a couple of kriyas. Seething with rebellion. My soul was like a volcano. Have you seen the footage from the movie Awake? Um, I don't know if you, there's this entire scene that's captured when Yoganandaji arrives at Puri and he sees, you should look into his eyes, you see that, you know, there's that power just glowing through it and you see he's not happy, you see something just feels like wow, and God only knows what he was, you know, communicating at the time and probably speaking to Sri Yukteswarji, I'm being a little upset with him, that how could you do this? By the time I reached the Puri Hermitage, I was nearing collapse. The inner voice was tenderly repeating, collect yourself, be calm. Nice, nice to yeah, know again. Very nice, again, yeah. that there was an inner voice. He was ignoring it. <laughs> so we can feel a little good about that. We have these inner voices. We like to ignore them too. Collect yourself, be calm. But it was important, but it was there repeating itself over and over. And that's the beauty of the sadhana that we do. That it becomes this constant inner voice that even though our conscious mind may not fully be able to, you know, all the time follow it, but it's there. And it starts to be there more and more and more and stronger and stronger and it won't leave you. Once you've set yourself firmly on the spiritual path, that inner voice, whether as a feeling, whether as a memory, whether as, a you know, all those words of my master that I read yesterday, whatever it is, there's always going to be. Collect yourself, be calm, or whatever in that moment you need the most, even while the soul is like a volcano seething with rebellion. I entered the ashram room where master's body, unimaginably lifelike, was sitting in the lotus posture, a picture of health and loveliness. Again, if you've seen the footage from that time, you just have Sri Yukteswar, he's sitting in Padmasan. I mean, his eyes are completely rolled up, but other than that, you know, his spine is straight. I mean, he's just locked into position. It's not like the lifeless body you would assume somebody to have. He's just right Some there, a yogi. Some of his disciples also were holding his body a little bit, I think. Yeah, then later on they were propping his head up, I remember. A short time before his passing, my guru had been slightly ill with fever. But before the day of his ascension into the infinite, his body had become completely well. No matter how often I look at his dear form, I could not realize that its life had departed. His skin was smooth and soft. In his face was a beatific expression of tranquility. He had consciously relinquished his body at the hour of mystic summoning. Even Yoganandaji's own body when he left it, um, I don't know, I guess it's in the beginning of this book or somewhere, maybe at the end, oops, where the um, 
attending physician or what was the coroner, are they called those who do the autopsies? He talks about how it's amazing because after almost 20 days, the body looks as fresh as the body, you know, as if the soul just left. And so he really makes note of it because he'd never seen anything like this in his life, where otherwise rigor mortis sets in quite soon and, you know, it becomes very obvious that there is no more life force in this body, but in Yogananda's case, and in the case of, in fact, many saints, um, even William the Conqueror, who was, uh, was Yogananda in a previous incarnation, they later on, when they exhumed his body, a lot of it was incorrupt, which is, again, for thousands of years, a very unusual thing. And so the saints, of course, they hold, they try their best to continue to hold power, even in the physical form, because then later on, years later, as disciples, as devotees come, we can still draw from those centers of their Mahasamadhi. The lion of Bengal is gone. I cried in a daze. The lion of Bengal. That's how he referred to his guru. I conducted the solemn rites on March 10th. So, of course, he passed March 9th. Sri Yukteswar was buried with the ancient rituals of the Swamis in the garden of his Puri ashram. There's a little footnote here worth reading because it's usually, you know, the rites are usually crematory. In this particular case, it's buried. That's what happens with saints, although of mostly with renunciates. And Master writes here, funeral customs in India require cremation for householders. But swamis and monks of other orders are not cremated but buried. The bodies of monks are symbolically considered to have undergone cremation in the fire of wisdom at the time of taking the monastic vow. That's again a very beautiful image. When that moment happens, when you take your monastic vows, essentially you are, you know, uh, condemning <laughs> your old self into the crematory fire right there is this you know as yogananda ji said i killed yogananda long time ago no one dwells in this body but god so like that we get the opportunity that swami that saint that monk whoever it is gets the opportunity really to actually cremate his own self and then step into a completely new birth and that is why um, that stage is called dwija twice born that you're born again because you've left your old self and now you're awake in a new life. His disciples later arrived from far and near to honor their guru at a vernal equinox memorial service. The Amrita Bazar Patrika, leading newspaper of Calcutta at that time, I guess, carried his picture and the following report. The death bandara ceremony for Srimat Swami Sri Yukteswar Giri Maharaj aged 81, took place at Puri on March 21st. So this is just the, the gathering that happened after his passing. Many disciples came down to Puri for the rites. One of the greatest expounders of the Bhagavad Gita, Swami Maharaj was a great disciple of Yogi Raj Sri Sham Charan Lahiri Mahashaya of Banaras. Swami Maharaj was the founder of several Yogoda Satsang and Self-Realization Fellowship Centers in India and was the great inspiration behind the yoga movement which was carried to the West by Swami Yogananda, his principal disciple. I found this very interesting here that they attribute 
YSS and SRF to Sri Yukteswarji. But it feels so appropriate and so right. Of course, the Guru is the one who established it, even though it was Yoganandaji who established the YSS and SRF organization. But again, it just feels, and I'm sure Yoganandaji would have, obviously, they would have reached out to him and they said, this is the article we're going to publish. Maybe he himself would have said, call him the founder. You know, say he made these things, not I. And just so beautiful, again, these little things that we don't pay attention to. Everything that we do in our lives, isn't it wonderful to be able to say, my guru did this. You know, this is his, this project is his, this life is his, this work is his, this promotion is his, this new salary bump is his. <laughs> This kind thought is his. This kind thought is his. <laughs> He's the founder of these <laughs> kind thoughts. <laughs> it was Sri Yukteswarji's prophetic powers and deep realization that inspired Swami Yogananda to cross the oceans and spread in America the message of the masters of India. His interpretations of the Bhagavad Gita and other scriptures testify to the depth of Sri Yukteswarji's command of the philosophy both Eastern and Western, and remain as an eye-opener for the unity between Orient and Occident. Seems like Master wrote these words, doesn't it? Yeah. So he must have written this little article, and then even more so that he attributes Sri Yukteswarji as the founder. As he believed in the unity of all religious faiths, Sri Yukteswar Maharaj established Sadhu Sabha, which is the Society of Saints, with the cooperation of leaders of various sects and faiths for the inculcation of a scientific spirit in religion. At the time of his demise, he nominated Swami Yogananda, his successor, as the president of Sadhu Sabha. India is really poorer today by the passing of such a great man. May all fortunate enough to have come near him inculcate in themselves the true spirit of India's culture and sadhana, which was personified in him. Beautiful tribute. I returned to Calcutta, not trusting myself as yet to go to the Serampur Hermitage with its sacred memories. I summoned Prafulla, Sri Yukteswar's little disciple in Serampur, and made arrangements for him to enter the Ranji school. The morning you left for the Allahabad Mela, Prafulla told me, Master dropped heavily on the Davenport. Yogananda is gone, he cried. Yogananda is gone, he added cryptically. I shall have to tell him some other way. He sat then for hours in silence. Again, just such a sweet relationship these two shared that, you know, again, we don't really tune into so often and in the last class where we touched upon the idea that as Swamiji, I don't know if he hinted, I can't quite remember the context, but when he said that, that he believed a master kind of uh, said it in some fashion or the other, that he and Sri Yukteswarji were soulmates of sort and that, that eternal bond somehow of these two souls, Yogananda is gone, the Lion of Bengal is gone. I mean, there's just this, both of them, you know, and they have this, a little hidden relationship that even though it wasn't apparent, Yogananda had to draw it out of him. Tell me you love me, please. Just once in my life, just say it to me. And even though here he says Yogananda is gone, mm. Sri Yukteswar had to let him go. Mm. Even for Sri Yukteswar, 
not to be able to tell his disciple, I'm, I mean, I'm going to leave and don't go to the Kumbha Mela because we are going to miss an opportunity to be together for you to be part of my transition to my unity with the divine. And, and if you go, you are going to miss all that. And Sri Yudeshwar had to let that go and not interfere in that process. And then from Yogananda's side, who they have a perfect attunement with each other. I mean, after 15 years coming back and being so connected with Sri Yudeshwar, being guided by Sri Yudeshwar's consciousness, even while he was in America, not being able to get that hint of Sri Yudeshwar telling him, you are not going to, buy, to find Babaji at the Kumbha Mela. And, and Yogananda wasn't able to even perceive that. So it's, it's fascinating for, for us as disciples to acknowledge that we will never be able to perhaps grasp perfectly the hints of the Guru. And, and it's important for us to, to leave room for that trust in the divine, like, okay, I, I didn't get it, but I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm not going to just blame myself for not to have understood something then, because even though I felt I didn't get it, but if God didn't allow me, to get it. Let me just be at peace with what happened. And I think this is an important aspect on the spiritual path. Sometimes when we don't get things, we blame ourselves and we feel so bad about it. Oh my God, it's just, it was so obvious and I didn't get it. Well, if God didn't allow, there was a reason for it. So just, just fascinating to see how Yogananda felt so bad because he didn't get that hint. And Sri Uteshwar lamenting like, he's gone. I won't be able to tell him. I will need to find other ways. It's fascinating. It's just so complicated, the guru-disciple relationship and the ways that we need to find to keep communicating with the guru even in the most confusing times of our lives. My days were filled with lectures, classes, interviews and reunions with old friends. Beneath a hollow smile and a life of ceaseless activity, a stream of black brooding polluted the inner river of bliss, which for so many years had meandered under the sands of all my perceptions. Again, a very honest kind of peek into Yoganandaji's state at that moment. He says, for so many years, that river of bliss had been, you know, present under every perception of mine. But right now, in this moment, what, do I, what does he have? A stream of black brooding was polluting that river of inner bliss. So whatever it is, in that moment, he was, you know, he really was Struggling. hurt. Yeah. I mean... 
and for those of us who get hurt easily and for those of us who have a lot of black brooding in our lives you know it just happens doesn't it even perfect bliss takes a little moment to come kind of reestablish after something that just shakes us completely where was where has that divine sage gone i cried silently from the depths of a tormented spirit no answer came wow that must be different difficult for yogananda ji no answer thus far he's like his guru's thoughts have never been far from him it's like just beneath the surface of his own thoughts he's always felt sri yukteswar ji and now no answer came it is best that the master has completed his union with his cosmic beloved my mind assured me he is eternally glowing in the dominion of deathlessness never again may you see him in the old serampur mansion my heart lamented no longer may you bring your friends to meet him or proudly say behold there sits india's gyan avatar mm. it's hard isn't it for him well i mean you see him writing here and it's just so many things so many memories as a little boy bringing his friends over and he's so proud he's so happy and he's you know showing off his guru to everybody he's like i'm never going to be able to do that again mr right made arrangements for our party to sail from bombay for the west in early june it's time to go back after a fortnight in may of farewell banquets and speeches at calcutta miss bletch mr right and myself left in the ford for bombay okay they're coming to us on our arrival the ship authorities asked us to cancel our passage as no room could be found for the ford which we would need again in europe never mind i said gloomingly to mr right i want to return once more to puri i silently added let my tears once again water the grave of my guru Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so many things were happening here at the same time. Not only Yogananda's disciple lost what he loved the most and what he was living for, which was really to fulfill his guru's mission and wishes. But what we see here is that self-realized, master that is holding uh, a great portion of india spiritually i mean he's holding this incredible divine power flowing through him and he's in his physical form in serampur or in puri or in kalkudan and he has held through his physical form himself alive in india just available and accessible and perhaps sustaining uh, an aspect of india spiritually speaking and now all that power is vanished from the material plane so it's a very very shifting a moment of 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 transitioning spiritually vibrationally and for us 
This very day when Sri Yuteshwar left his body has become in our lives a, a doorway, a portal that we can also enter in and, and be part of that freedom, of that moment where he united himself back with that cosmic consciousness. And very, very soon we will be celebrating that exit of his body. But it, it's big what's happening here. I mean, one self-realized master is, just, is about to leave the earth. And he has left. And there is a big void, not just in his disciples, in their hearts, but in the world in the world and, and, and Yogananda is tuning into all these streams of consciousness and, and the shift that's happening outside himself, inside and now the relationship he needs to develop with his guru is completely new and all this bliss he was experiencing because his guru in the physical form was holding as well in him. Now it's gone. I mean, when someone that you lo love the most leaves you, a part of you leaves you as well. And, and it takes time to, to adjust a new reality, to bring yourself back together, to collect yourself and become in the process. So now we are with Yogananda living all those moments where, where he just needs to, to see what has happened how the exit of Sri Yuteshwar is going to impact his mission, how he's going to communicate with him to be guided. And it's, it's, it's a big thing, both. Also, we'll see later on what a blessing this has been for now Sri Yuteshwar to go to another higher spheres and planets and help even much more evolved souls than human beings. So so glad that he left but there is a void now going on on earth and thank god we still have yogananda after sri yuteshwar's exit and he will kind of still support the world with his presence but it's it's sad to lose you know a saint in the world it's just very sad but a blessing and, and we'll hear more what Yogananda has to say about this transition and he will have another chance to just go to Puri and once more you know go through that process of healing and acceptance and embracing what has happened because he knows this is what needs to happen but it is it, it's going to take him time to just the whole thing.